Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is David Blitzer. I'm a PGY2 at Indiana University's Integrated Cardiothoracic Surgery Program. I'm here with Dr. Joel Corvera, Associate Professor of Clinical Surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine and the Medical Director of Thoracic Vascular Surgery for Indiana University Health. Thanks for meeting with us, Dr. Corvera. Uh, We'll start off with a case. We have a 75-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension, COPD, and Marfan's who was hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation. During her admission, a chest x-ray revealed an enlarged descending aorta. After discharge, she is referred to you in clinic for evaluation. Do you have any immediate thoughts or considerations upon hearing this brief history? Yes. Well, first of all, the patient at 75 for Marfan is uh, is a... a little bit older than I normally see, at least for the first time for aortic problems, but uh, usually they have, usually they, they'll have an aortic dissection or, or f- we'll find a proximal aneurysm prior to this. But, but in this case, uh, um, what, what, I would, what I would be thinking in this patient who has Marfan syndrome is that, uh, you know, even despite 75, being 75 years old, if she's an okay operative candidate, uh, surgery, open surgery, should still be a very good option, uh, especially if it's if it's in the setting of um, uh, a chronic aortic dissection, which is kind of my, my preferred uh, technique is to fix those open if they're if the patient's a good surgical candidate. Um, thoracic endograft repair, um, I think, still in the setting of connective tissue disorders, I think you need to be careful about placing endografts because I think we do not we do not know what's going to happen to the the proximal distal seal zones. But, um, you know, certainly if in an emergency situation or urgent situation, I think an endograft uh, would be um, reasonable, even in someone with a connective tissue disorder. Great. So for this patient, she is asymptomatic. She does not have a home O2 requirement and has no steroid history. She is a former smoker with a 60-pack year history, and she does have prior PFTs, which reveal an obstructive pattern with preserved DLCO. Is there anything else you would need to elicit from a history before proceeding to further workup? I would just ask for the normal things that I ask for uh, uh, surgical patients, mostly activity tolerance, um, exercise tolerance. You know, I would try to see if she has any anginal type symptoms or heart failure type symptoms. Um, uh, not uh, or e- even if she was on HOMO two, that in my in my eyes, it's not necessarily a contraindication for surgery, but certainly a uh, uh, I'd be concerned about it, um, but uh, if we can say elicit a history of angina or heart failure type symptoms, certainly we'd have to. That would uh, prompt uh, um, a coronary angio um, and uh, transthoracic echo. But that's pretty standard if I'm thinking about doing um, an open operation in in, uh, in a Marfan patient. Okay. And what are the mandatory elements uh, of a workup for this kind of patient? Yeah, so um, for for thoracic endograft, I, I don't think you need too much because again, the hemodynamic, um, other than the CAT scan, and you would have to have a a CT angio, including the uh, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. If, you're, if there's thought that you might want to recover the left subclavian artery, um, either you can just revascularize it, or uh, just routinely, or 
um, if you wanted to get a CT angio of the head and neck to see if there's a, you know, which vertebral artery was dominant, um, then that can, you can selectively revascularize the left subclavian artery. But um, uh, but not much, you know, th that's what you need for a thoracic integrator. If you can do an open operation, uh, I think at least uh, at least the way we do the operation here, which is using deep hypothermia, you need to have a coronary angio. Any significant coronary lesions needs to be addressed beforehand, sometimes with coronary bypass or, or stenting. Uh, if, if it's a totally occluded vessel and collateralized, then I think it's okay to leave that alone. But then I also get a transthoracic echo to see if there's any significant aortic insufficiency because um, during the if we, if you do it under deep hypothermia the the period of fibrillatory rest the uh, the heart will distend. Um, so those are the um, uh, mandatory elements of an open operation workup. And she has a, a CTA which demonstrates a 6.5 centimeter fusiform aneurysm of the descending aorta to the level of the celiac artery. Any thoughts on that? It it uh, sounds like it's a Crawford uh, kind of extent one thoracoabdominal aneurysm. Um, it's certainly big enough to fix, uh, especially in a Marfan patient. Um, uh, I think uh, for most uh, people, uh, an optimum indication based on size would be uh, greater than six centimeters for the descending thoracic aorta, or uh, if you have a Serial CT scans a growth rate of greater than uh, half a centimeter in a year. Um, um, certainly, um, I think I think people with connective tissues disorders, uh, I think consideration should be given to fixing the aneurysm, even if it's smaller than six centimeters. Um, uh, we fix so uh, there's no. Um, real uh, data on this, but if, if we're going to be fixing um, an ascending aortic aneurysm in a Marfan patient at 4.5 centimeters, certainly we should be fixing a descending thoracic aortic aneurysm probably close to the same size since the descending thoracic aortic should be smaller. Although uh, I would say that I think five or five and a half centimeters uh, for a connective tissue disorder patient may be reasonable in the descending thoracic aorta. Say so this patient uh wasn't an operative candidate, or for whatever reason, what would your general follow-up practice be? Um, so, if if it's if um, the patient's uh, aneurysm isn't large enough to fix, um, then usually, what if this is an initial CT scan that identifies the aneurysm? I usually scan them again in about six months, uh, only because I, I what I want to do is see if there's a, a significant growth rate to it, because since we only have one snapshot in time. Um, if it looks relatively stable, I may, you know, or, or say say that the, the, the diameter measurement is exactly the same, I would scan them again in about 12 months. If uh, things would change, if it starts to grow or get closer to my cutoff criteria for surgery, then I actually will decrease the intervals. Um, if, it's a, if it's an acute dissection um, uh, and, they, and they're hospitalized, and, that's, and, and, and that was their initial hospitalization for the acute dissection, I would scan. I would uh, scan them again um, at uh, one month, and then probably at three months because the changes in, during acute dissection um, can happen uh, fairly rapidly, um, especially if we're just going to be doing medical management. Okay. Uh, do you have any further workup that you'd like to see before proceeding to the OR with a patient that does meet operative indications? Uh, for open operation. Um, 
I think uh, the uh, the cath is, you know, to see for if there's any significant epicardial coronary disease. Uh, again, we would, and if there is, say, three vessel disease, I would, uh, um, I would actually uh, offer the patient coronary bypass, and then after a period of recovery, then tackle the uh, the thoracal abdominal aneurysm. If they have single vessel disease or maybe even two vessel disease, you can do a percutaneous intervention. Um, what we've also done in the past is if it's, say, significant disease but they're left-sided lesions, we could actually do coronary bypass in a, an extent one and two thoracobdominal aneurysm repair uh, at the same time. Uh, you can take down the, the internal mammary artery or use vein grafts uh, to the left-sided vessels. It's hard to get to the right side. And then I also, again, I, I, we get a transthoracic echo only to look uh, to see if they have moderate aortic insufficiency or greater or greater than moderate aortic insufficiency. Uh, we have done uh, valve replacements or repairs before the thoracobdominal aneurysm in order so that the uh, hemodynamics are uh, better better tolerated during the thoracobdominal aneurysm repair. And we touched on this briefly, but how do you approach the decision for endovascular versus open repair? Um, this is a this is a great question. I think a lot of times we always think we always look for uh, endo uh, first option, and I think that's true for a lot of things. I think uh, fusiform aneurysms certainly if there's a good proximal land, land uh, proximal distal landing zone, so long as the patient is not very young and, and very young is open to debate. Um, I think a thoracic endograft repair is a, a, a very good option. It's uh, uh, minimally invasive, uh, and usually works very well, and recovery time is very quick. For an acute DeBakey 3B aortic dissection uh, with complications, I think uh, thoracic endograft repairs is a, is a great uh, um, option because you can image the aorta distally after the proximal repair. Uh, you may have to cover the left subclavian artery, so then there's the nuance of whether or not you want to revascularize it. Um, but in the but usually those are emergent operations, so usually cover just uh, usually cover it, you know, and, and maybe revascularize it later. Um, but I think if, again for the acute complicated debakey type three B, I think TVR is a great uh, option. Although there is an incidence uh, which is probably reported in the four to six percent range of a retrograde type A aortic dissection, which uh, uh, um, which can be catastrophic. Um, if you have a chronic aortic dissection, my preference has been to fix it open only because the chronic dissections are very complicated. And the currently available you know, thoracic endografts are, are purely for the thoracic purely for the thoracic aorta and really don't address the abdominal uh, component. Um, so uh, and I just I think the chronic dissection with the um uh, flow uh, even distally into the false lumen that can come come around the endograft. I, I think that that the for the chronic dissection, uh, thoracic endograft repair alone um, is probably not a, a good solution for most people. Uh, even given like e- even if you have all four vessels, all four visceral vessels coming off the true lumen and, and and things like that, I think it's still there are enough fenestrations and flow uh, from the true lumen to the false lumen that I, I think. Uh, uh, consistently or getting an obliteration of the false lumen even around the endograft can be can be difficult. So, so for the chronic aortic dissection, um, my preference is to do it open if the patient's a good surgical candidate. And uh, 
For this patient, could you describe the steps to the procedure, uh, how you'd approach it for both open and endovascular options? Sure. So for this patient uh, with the uh, step one thoracoabdominal aneurysm, uh, certainly they'd be in the uh, right lateral decubus position. We do roll the hips back slightly so that we can uh, get to either right or left groin. Uh, typically enter the uh, uh, sixth intercostal space, but we actually notch the uh, that sixth rib and then uh, go jump into the seventh intercostal space and then actually divide the, the um, seventh rib at the costal margin. And that provides really good access. We can get very far proximally uh, and, and, we can, and we can push the diaphragm way down as well. Um, as far as vascular control, um, since, since most of these patients, at least in my technique or, or Dr. Fehrenbacher's technique, he's the one who taught me, um, we don't get any proximal control because we'll actually we'll do this under deep hypothermia and we'll actually circuit rest. Uh, for the chronic dissection, I think this is very helpful because a lot of times this dissection actually wraps even anterior to the left subclavian artery. And often you have to, uh, your anastomosis uh, uh, can be a little bit proximal to the left subclavian artery, at least on the lesser curved side. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to do it, uh, with a clamp, like if you're going to do left heart bypass or full cardiopulmonary bypass, but keep the heart beating, I think you need to, uh, you need to be able to put the clamp between the carotid and subclavian. Um, again, cannulation options, it depends on what technique you're going to use. I think left heart bypass is usually atrofemoral or atro, atrial and, and aorta. Um, full, full bypass uh, techniques. I think you can go fem fem. Uh, the for chronic aortic dissection it doesn't seem to matter. Fem fem does not a- appear to confer a higher risk for stroke. However, an atherosclerotic aneurysms that's uh, that's the ones I worry about. So I will an atherosclerotic aneurysms. Uh, I would if if possible try to cannulate uh, prox- as proximally as I can to try to avoid retrograde flow uh, in the arch. Um, again, for the anast- anastomotic te- techniques for, op- for uh, open surgery, um, uh, it's, um, for the most part, um, I try to ice uh, the proximal anastomosis. I, I agree with this, the Dr. Safi that you need to, um, isolate the aorta circumferentially so that to avoid, uh, any potential fistula with the esophagus, um, Otherwise, uh, I, I think, um, you know, uh, um, uh, for the, and that's what we like to do for the distal as well. But uh, otherwise, um, I think you can use a, a kind of an inclusion-type technique for the other uh, anastomoses. Intercostals, I'm very aggressive about putting intercostals back because that's certainly, um, uh, if they're open, uh, and we target T, TA through L1 for reimplantation. Uh, so for an endovascular uh, operation, uh, I was taught that pretty much 90% of the procedure has to be done prior to even entering the operating room. So the operative plan has to be uh, pretty much solidified in the surgeon's mind before you get there. Uh, certainly, we're looking uh, as far as access vessels. You know, where we, you know, how are we going to get there? Um, you know, are we going to need conduits or are devices small enough that we can go up the iliofemoral arteries? Certainly sizing probably should be done by a software that uh, can do 3D uh, reconstructions and maybe centerline imaging uh, of reconstructions just so they can get the appropriate size. Um, and um, 
in the in the in the left subclavian artery. And I still think there's debate about this. Uh, for a while, I was routinely revascularizing the left subclavian artery, which I think is a good practice, especially for young people. Um, but uh, uh, if you're going to if you're going to be uh, thinking about covering it, I think you do need imaging uh, of the circle of Willis to, and to see which uh, vertebral artery is dominant uh, uh, to reduce the risk of stroke. You don't want to, if, and if the left vertebral is dominant, then you should selectively revascularize that. And certainly, if they have a patent internal mammary to uh, anterior descending, that needs to be revascularized. I think there's a relative uh, indication for revascularization if you have a fistula, like an arteriovenous fistula for dialysis on that side. Uh, so I think uh, for the most part, I still am pretty aggressive about uh, revascularizing the left subclavian artery, but I think there are certain, certainly in an emergency situations um, uh, that either uh, you either take the risk or that can be done uh, more electively if they're having uh, uh, vertebral basilar type symptoms. And, uh, how would your procedure change, if at all, for these different Crawford subtypes? Um, uh, interestingly, not much <laughs> for me for for the uh, for the open operation. Uh, even uh, for most people who do this, uh, to do uh, a lot of thoracoabdominal angioma repair, if they're going to be doing a uh, like an extent four thoracoabdominal angioma repair, actually they usually do not use a pump. Uh, we we have been uh, using actually still full pump hypothermia. It's the, it's the same technique, interestingly enough, and that works well for us. Um, but for for many people, Crawford threes and fours are actually uh, either on pump for a very brief morning time, brief uh, moment of time, or not on pump at all. Uh, but so not not so much certainly for the more proximal thoracoabdominal aneurysms. Uh, um, pretty much everyone uses uh, some type of uh, perfusion assistance. And how about your approach to a patient with a ruptured aneurysm? Yeah, this is a difficult case. Um, so, you know, depending on uh, if they're ruptured but kind of contained, I think we just move uh, the way we normally do just very expeditiously. We'll, we'll still, uh, uh, you know, heparinize them and, and put them on pump and then even cool them down. Um, uh, but it's kind of sometimes hard to get control. Uh, sometimes I, what I've done before is not open the chest until I'm ready to go, but then that gives gives a certain amount of um, that that, that – uh, uh, it takes a certain amount of time when you're on pump to to get to get to get situated. Um, you know, worst case scenario, you just have to put a clamp on somewhere and start sewing, which is the old way of doing it. But we know that the, uh, the mortality and the uh, um, complication rates are are, are are very high, including paraplegia. So um, you know, uh, I, I think the mortality is very high for this procedure. Uh, um, I think you, 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 what you should probably do is just stick to the technique that you're you, that you're comfortable with, and then and, and then hope it works. Now, for what are what are your particular post-operative concerns or considerations? What are you specifically looking for in the initial post-operative period? So uh, the things that we are um, worried about in the post-operative period are certainly spinal cord ischemia. We we do uh, motor revoked and somatosensory revoked potentials in the in in the operating room, so we know how they're doing at the end of the procedure, we may or may not have a lumbar drain in place. If, certainly if their motor potentials are not present, we will, the, we will place a lumbar drain. And so for that consideration, we'd like to keep the, the, uh, uh, the pressure ideally around less than 10 if we can. However, we don't like to drain so much. We don't like to freely drain because uh, there's a risk of uh, you know, developing subdural hematomas if you drain too much too fast. Um, 
uh, we will certainly want to maintain hemodynamics if we're uh, uh, and we may need uh, vasopressor support for this, but for the most part, um, what I've found uh, in our case is that we just need to maintain a mean pressure of seventy to ninety. We don't have to go, and if, certainly if we have spinal cord ischemia, we can go higher. We don't, but initially, if if we have uh, motivable potentials that are present, or the patient's moving uh, the legs after surgery, we we will just target a, a pretty much a normal mean pressure. Uh, we don't necessarily go to try to target a mean pressure above 100. Uh, certainly, we're looking for our kidney function and urine output. Um, certainly, the way we do the operation, the pump runs are relatively long, so we want to make sure that we you don't know, keep an eye on kidney function uh, and urine output. Um, 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 the, uh, the as as we tend to go very proximal on our anastomosis for the extent one and twos. Uh, certainly, uh, the recurrent nerve or palsy can be a problem. Um, once the patients are extubated and, and, and sitting up, you can you can assess what their voice is like. If they do have, if their voice is hoarse, then we have we 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 do have aspiration precautions and have them sit bolt straight up when they're eating because sometimes their swallowing function actually is a little bit um, diminished uh, with the uh, recurrent nerve or vagus nerve palsy. Um, and certainly, um, um, we 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 try to look to extubate these patients. Hopefully, on, on the, the the morning after surgery, uh, provided there's no bleeding and hemodynamics are okay. Um, occasionally, we see uh, hematomas form inside the lung from manipulation, and then you heparinize the patient afterwards. And depending on the manipulation that you have to do, uh, bef- you know, in order to get uh, uh, before uh, in order in order to get situated for surgery. Uh, some of the redo uh, thoracoabdominal aneurysm repairs, there's a lot of lung manipulation. And so we, we're looking at the x-ray to see if there, um, you know, is there significant um, uh, infiltrates or, or essentially hemorrhage inside the lung. Uh, generally speaking, it's manageable. Even if it, the x-ray looks bad, and, but everything else looks okay, they can be extubated. Um, but some may need a bronch before that. And sometimes we even do the bronch inside the op- uh, in, before we leave the operating room just to make sure that the lungs are clear. Um, if you're going to be doing, uh, you know, the lower thoracoabdominal aneurysm repair, certainly you're looking at, at uh, acid-base status. If if uh, you did, normally we do separate grafts to the visceral vessels. If you're worried about, uh, you know, gut ischemia, certainly, um, you know, uh, either just bloody diarrhea or even just runny diarrhea immediately post-op is, is a cause for concern. Uh, so there's a lot of things to worry about in this type of operation because the aorta pretty much is... <laughs> important for everything, and so we kind of look at everything uh, very closely. Um, but uh, uh, generally speaking, if the, if the if the case goes well, generally speaking, the post-op course is usually pretty well. And to uh, briefly discuss some other scenarios, let's say you had an aneurysm which extended more proximally, uh, i.e., involving the arch. Any changes to your approach? Yeah, this is a yeah, this is a, a good question. So I think we have uh, several options here, and I think it has to a lot of it has to do with the, the clinical situation. If it looks like it's an arch aneurysm and a descending uh, aneurysm, uh, one uh, there there you can either stage it or do it uh, in one stage. Um, um, 
Dr. Kachukas has uh, a technique where he does a clamshell and he can replace even the aortic root all the way down to the aortic root and replace all the way down to the diaphragm and the descending. That's a big operation, and I think uh, Dr. Kachukas does very, very well with it. But uh, we have not done that operation. It is, it is, a, it is a large operation, and, uh, but the, the respiratory failure rate is relatively high. It's, uh, I think he reported somewhere between around 18% for uh, needing, uh, the, needing a tracheostomy. So a single-stage clamshell is an option, but that's a big operation. You can two-stage it where you replace uh, uh, either the ascending and arch uh, through a sternotomy and then leave an elephant trunk and then, um, and then do a completion, either a thoracic endograft or open operation. So that, but that would be a two-stage procedure. Um, well, you can even do that in, in one-stage procedure. If you have a, a landing zone uh, distally or descending aorta, you can do the <coughs> ascending arch elephant and then do a frozen elephant trunk. Uh, which uh, which is also a very good option. Uh, some may say that the paraplegia rate may be higher for those type of procedures, depending on how much you have to cover in the descending aorta. But that, that that's also a very good option. Um, or uh, you can do what we have done uh, is also replace the arch uh, and descending aorta through the left through through the left chest. Uh, you can get as you can get pretty pretty much as proximal uh, to the sinotubular junction. It's a bit of a stretch. Sometimes you have to divide the sternum transversely to get there. Uh, but, but we have done that on uh, people who have had, say, previous um, uh, proximal pairs of an aortic dissection where we have, they have an arch aneurysm and maybe chron in chronic dissection of the, of the uh, uh, distal aorta where we just replace uh, uh, the arch to the previous uh, ascending graft and then take it around as far as we can uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the distal descending thoracic aorta. So that is another option um, uh, for, for that type of procedure. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Guerra. I know I, and I'm sure everyone listening, greatly appreciates your time. Well, thank you, David.